As I look out of my office window, I can see daffodils swaying in the spring breeze and perky-looking tulips valiantly bringing colour to a world which has, for the past few months at least, felt harsh and bare. As I look, I remember the time I planted those bulbs. I remember compost and fertiliser and hope that went in the ground with them. These constituent elements, and many others which are already in the ground, that I wouldn't have been aware of and wouldn't be able to speak particularly knowledgeably about, because after all, this is a music podcast, these are the things that make miracles of nature bring the joy that they do to my garden right now. So much that goes overlooked has made this moment in nature possible. Sometimes it's those things that go overlooked rather than the finished product, which is what draws my focus. It's a similar thing with pianist Elan Sycroft's epic collection of recordings of works by lesser-known Russian composer Thomas de Hartmann. De Hartmann was born in Russia in 1885 and died in New York at the age of 70 in 1956. No, I hadn't heard of him either. That's partly because the very characteristics that made de Hartmann de Hartmann a seeming obliviousness to the trends around him that in fact drove his creativity... That also meant that awareness of him at the time was overlooked by others. Or at least that's the impression I have, speaking to Elan Sycroft in this podcast. What it takes is the dedication of others to bring that which ends up overlooked to the attention of others. It is the people who carry the torch which draw my focus. In this case, it's a self-possessed grieving widow, and in the case of Elan Sycroft, musician that the grieving widow cast such a spell over. Or at least that's how I like to see it. It is those who introduce us to that which we hadn't thought we'd want to listen to or see or experience, who I think deserves the focus and attention. Maybe even more so than the creative force who came up with the material in the first place. The advocates are the ones who keep the bulbs in the ground flowering year after year to the advocates and the interpreters who deserve the focus. Uh, trained as a classical pianist and um, by various circuitous routes, which don't really need to be part of this conversation, I wound up at a school called the International Academy for Continuous Education in Gloucestershire in 1972. And this happened to be a school that was based on the teachings, the spiritual and philosophical teachings of Gurdjieff. And when I arrived there, I had really no, no idea what was going on. I came to see a girlfriend, actually. And, um, and I ended up staying. The director of the, um, of the academy was quite an extraordinary man. And he himself had also knowledge about music. He had met Nadia Boulanger, and he had worked with Arthur Schnabel. Um, not, he was not a pianist, but he was sort of a polymath. And uh, he convinced me that if I came on this 10-month course, that it would help my music. So I arrived there, and the first thing that happened was that um, 
they sat me behind the piano and had me play this music, this music that I never heard before, to accompany these dances. And these dances had been composed by Gurdjieff in collaboration with Thomas de Hartman composing music um, for these dances that Gurdjieff had come across during his 20 plus years of searches through, you know, Asia, the Middle East and North Africa. So this was my introduction to de Hartmann. Um, not very, um, it was not enough to turn me away from regular classical music from Beethoven, Mozart and the rest of it, that music. It was, you know, it was accompaniment music. Okay. So, and then, uh, then I was introduced to this other body of sacred music, which was composed in collaboration between Hartmann and Gurdjieff, which was more interesting because these were actually performance pieces for the piano. There were about two, there were about 200 of them that they composed together. And, um, and those were very interesting. Um, but again, they didn't turn me from my classical Thing. This was music from the East. It was Russian Orthodox hymns, Essenian hymns, music of the dervishes, Tibetan music, you name it. It was almost like this catalog of world music, um, which I'm much more interested in now than I was then, to tell you the truth. Um, but then, after I'd been there for about a year, uh, Mr. Bennett put me in touch with Madame de Hartmann, and she, who is still alive, and uh, Thomas had died in 56. This was 1972. And she, um, and he told her that I might be able to promote her husband's music. So she sent me this music, some of the sheet music for the late, late works. Mm -hmm. And that was my first introduction to the music, where I really came across the classical music. spoke to you musically you know how did what was it that you connected with so you're going to make me go through this whole story all right so I'm, I'm, okay i mean i i don't want to i don't want to make you feel uncomfortable but this is there is a reason that we're doing this interview okay <laughs> but you know if you don't want to tell me if i don't tell you then you're not gonna yeah, yeah there's not gonna right. be any material. well then i will tell you but it is it is it is it, it can't i'll try to make it brief but it is quite it's quite a long story because what happened was when I got to this place at Sherborne, Gloucestershire, um, my interest was in Mozart and Beethoven. And J.G. Bennett put me in, t encouraged me to perform Mozart and Beethoven, particularly the late piano sonatas of Beethoven he was very interested in. And, um, and when I received this music, the, it was the uh, two nocturnes, Opus 84, the music of the stars and the banality of life, the Dance of Life, subtitled The Banality of Life That Cannot Be Conquered by Man. And uh, that it was accompanied by a recording of Hartmann playing these pieces himself. And his performance was 
inimitable. It was, he got some of the strangest effects that I had ever heard from the piano before. I mean, the music of the stars was completely spacey piece. But when I went to play them, the pieces didn't really work. And I was trying to, to fit them into this, you know, model of Beethoven, late 19th, late 18th, early 19th century music. It didn't fit. And um, so I played this music. I played the second piano sonata, which is also a very late work dedicated to the idea of the fourth dimension, not really understanding anything of what I was doing at all. And I had, I'll just recount one interesting experience that happened. We used to have, um, we used to have entertainments every two weeks. We would have a Saturday night entertainment and I would play various pieces. One day I played the second piano sonata and this is a piece that I had absolutely zero connection to. And after I played it, Bennett came over to me and said, you know, of all the pieces that you've played, that is the piece that has most interested the people in this school. So something must have been coming through from just the music, which I was not understanding at all. So it went on like this for a few years. And then in 1975, I met Madame de Hartmann. I did a performance of the work. And she gave me, it wasn't until she gave me the violin sonata to work on. And then finally, which was Opus 51. So it was sort of working backwards. And then she gave me, some. she didn't give it, somebody gave me the Opus 7, the CPS Opus 7. And this was written when Hartmann was 16 years of age. It was just the most gorgeous music I'd ever heard. It was romantic. It was, you know, it was Russian romanticism. These were six pieces that had everything that I was looking for. They were virtuosic. It turned out later that he was a, you know, he had been a pupil of Esipova Lechetitsky, who was one of the great, great, uh, what's it called, female virtuosos in the 19th century, and he was obviously modeling his composition for her. And... They, these pieces were sounded like Schumann, Chopin. The last one sounded a novelette sounded like Mussorgsky, and I was just just overcome by this music. So that was that was sort of the trajectory. It went sort of backwards, and after I got back to the beginning, then I could begin to crawl backwards, crawl towards mm -hmm. his later work, which then made sense over a period of years, I have to say. But it was those early pieces, and it was also the violin sonata. The violin sonata, I got that piece before I found a violinist to play with it. And it was so, the, the just the piano part was so amazing that I just was perfectly happy to play that. And then we played the violin 
with the piano. It was just an extraordinary piece. Tell me about his wife, because it sounds from from how you tell this story that actually she played a critical role in you sort of uh, being introduced to his sort of wider canon. I'm interested in her. I, you know, when I hear you talk about it, I'm interested in trying to sort of uh, visualise okay, well, her. Tell me about her. Okay, well, Madame de Hartmann, I'll just give you some a little background about Madame de Hartmann before I talk about my inter my relationship with her. Madame de Hartmann was extremely beautiful woman. She was from the Russian aristocracy. She was a soprano that Hartmann modeled his songs on. Hartmann wrote probably more songs than any other than any other sort of medium. He worked in with, with songs straight through his life. She had this beautiful soprano voice. And she was a tiny woman but she had the soul of a lion. And, you know, for example, when they escaped Russia during the revolution, they went with Gurdjieff down to Tbilisi to, to escape the Bolsheviks because Hartmann had been, both of them were from the aristocracy. They would have been murdered. And, and they were uh, stopped by a, a band of, of some bandits on the way. And the story goes that uh, Madame hid most of her jewels in her bosom, you know, but the things that she gave to them, you know, she asked them for a receipt. They had to write. They had to write her a receipt so that the next, so that the next band of bandits came, that, that 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 stopped them. She would show the receipt that they had taken everything nice. already. Nice. <laughs> that's so, that's good organization, that is. So she was she was an extremely strong woman. As a matter of fact, with Gurdjieff, she was his. She was basically his secretary. She did all the business stuff, which is quite strange considering her aristocratic upbringing. One would have thought that she would have just been, you know, not very, not very worldly. Let's put it that way. So when I met her, she, I, I had heard that she was, I figured she must be pretty old. And I stopped at Heathrow Airport. I was living in London at the time. And I stopped at Heathrow and I got some after eight dinner mints for a, 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 a gift for her. And when I got to Montreal, there was this house with a, going upstairs, there was sort of like this, um, uh, this motorized lift for somebody who was incapacitated. You know what I'm talking about, one mm -hmm. of those seats. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I figured she must be really, you know, senile. Anyway, this woman walks down the stairs like that, you know, straight as an arrow. She walks down the stairs. I give her my gift. She says to me, I don't want your after-date dinner mints. I want your beard. <laughs> oh. 
Okay. Wow. If you don't give me your, if you don't cut off your beard, you can go home tomorrow Gosh. on the plane tomorrow. Gosh. And of course, she hadn't paid for the flight, so it was no skin off of her nose, as I later found out. And she said, nobody wants to hear a person like you play at the age of uh, 25, a, a person who looks like they're 45 play the way you do. You know, I was 25. And she, she sat there and made life difficult for me for the next several hours. Finally, she put on a recording of her husband and she would, she was very critical and she's, put a recording of Hartman playing the music of the stars. And after, after she played that, she said, Seacroft, you go play now. So I went over to the um, to this little upright piano and I began to play and she could not resist, even though she had told me, you know, you'd go home if you don't get your beard cut off. She could not resist. She stood behind me, put her hand on my back, and waves of emotion started coming through my body. Okay? That was her transmission. And when, we, when it was done, she turned to this audience because it was in front of a group of people. And she said, he can keep his mustache. That was my introduction to her. I gave her a very difficult time. I did cut off my beard, but I didn't say I would. So, and, and we ended up having a very, very, um, we had a really good relationship. Her main, her main, emphasis her main thing was feeling and she claimed that feeling that pianists did not know what real feeling was now nowadays they didn't play with feeling and she was work she worked with me relentlessly to try to get something emotional to come out and i had but i have to say by the, at that point i was going through a fairly dry period emotionally and it was very and it was very difficult work working with her very difficult oh she so. sounded uh, she sounds very demanding and actually very very focused in a way that um that sort of it's almost a lot fierce in fact sort of like a not not fierce as in angry but as in a fierce sort of passion about oh, her. she was she was she was a character of the first order we went to McGill University for that first performance that I did. We went to McGill, and the piano, you have to understand, she would not allow a female in her presence wearing slacks. If you had long hair as a male, you she was she didn't like it, you know. She was this was somebody who would, she knew the Tsar and the Tsarina personally. They were close. She set up a school for the officers that were um, uh, working directly with the czar. You know, she was right up there. And we went to, to the, uh, the concert hall in McGill, 
and she said, um, and she saw this, the piano was on a sort of a movable platform, you know, those tripod platforms with the big wheels. And she said, this is not, this is not suitable for my husband's music to be playing on a piano that could be just rolled out of the room like that, you know. So she wanted that piano to be taken off of that platform and put onto regular wheels. And there was a stagehand there with long hair and jeans, which she didn't approve of. And she said, Monsieur or Mademoiselle, I cannot tell which, <laughs> she said. Come here and do this. And of course, he couldn't do it because he was just a stagehand. But, you know, it was that kind of attitude, this kind of imperious attitude that she had, which she never lost. It makes and me yeah. it makes me wonder whether actually maybe she never got over the loss of her husband or maybe she didn't really get over the loss of leaving their homeland. I, I don't know. I just sort of put that out there as a... Well, she certainly never got over the loss of her husband, and she never got off over the loss of the 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 time that she had with Gurdjieff. But, um, but I think it was it was she was she was just she lived in that she never lost that sort of social thing, you know, the grand dame. And I have to say that since that time. I have, when I was doing the recording project in uh, the Netherlands, I met a number of, of women, strong women. They were usually small. And, and they had that same kind of, they had that same kind of thing. You know, there was this, this very, very strong and very uncompromising attitude who, who do you think is the the dominant force in her music this is a little in his music rather slightly strange but he, i'm wondering whether for you in your appreciation or connection with heart department's music whether it's whether it's her that dominates or whether it's him now say that again so so I see someone who plays De Hartman's music, who has who plays it because they've been introduced to it via uh, a series of people. One of whom is very passionate, very forthright, uh, and sounded a little bit judgmental. Um, I'm wondering whether, when playing his music and advocating his music, you are thinking of him or you are thinking of her. I'm thinking of him, and she also thinks of him. She also thought of him. I mean, Madame De Hartman. I don't want to give you the wrong picture because she was just a wonderful person. She had an incredible sense of humor. She just could be, she, she, she was not to be trifled with on no. certain levels, but, um, but she adored her husband at the same time. At the same time, she was in control. You know, I mean, there was a story that Marjorie von Harten once told me when I was living in London, she was very, high society woman and she knew the de Hartmanns very well and they apparently were having lunch in a restaurant and, and Hartmann and her and Marjorie's husband were making jokes and Madame said let's go Marjorie we don't have to put up with this so so it was like that but no Hartmann I mean Madame de Hartmann recognized and this was the thing this was what was behind everything that she did Hartman, Thomas de Hartmann died in 56 and she went into mourning the story was that she woke up around 19 
59 or 1960 and, and realized that she had a job on her hands. She had to help get her husband's music known. And that's what she dedicated the rest of her life to, to doing. And so is that work, do you think, do you think that work and that passion that she brought to that work was a reaction to the grief? Was it a way of getting out of the grief? No. I think that it was purely, she, she understood, she understood what, um, the value of her husband's work. I mean, I mean the thing the thing about Thomas de Hartmann, his 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 career had a very odd trajectory. By the time he was 21, he was famous throughout Russia. And she was there, you know? I mean, Hartmann studied with Arensky for 10 years. Arensky, a great Russian romantic composer, taught Prokofiev, taught uh, Rachmaninoff who actually followed in his style. And Scriabin also, and she, he was a student, as I said, he was a student of Esipova, he was a student of Tanayev, very close to Tanayev, the Russian Brahms. He worked with Kandinsky, was Kandinsky's closest friend. I mean, Hartmann had these very, very high profile, uh, very important people in 20th century history, musically and, and non-musically, by the way. Uh, and she was living through that. She knew that he was a seriously important composer. Hartmann, when 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 he when his ballet was performed in front of the Tsar in 1906, the La Plurette Rouge, uh, the Tsar gave him dispensation for military service. So while the ballet was performed for six straight seasons in Saint Petersburg and one in in in, um, in Moscow, Hartmann runs off to Munich, gives up his career, and gets gets involved with the Blaureiter group and with with Kandinsky. And then when he, you know, then he comes back to Russia, he meets Gurdjieff, and with Gurdjieff, he disappears. I mean, he's working at music, he's becoming exposed to the music of the East and all that, but he disappears from the classical scene. And when he comes back in France in 1929, um, he leaves um, He leaves Gurdjieff and he goes to, to Paris, out, um, and, um, and he has to struggle, he has to compose film scores for, for seven years in order to support himself. And then he starts to compose these big, huge works, these concerti, these symphonies, ballets, opera, big chamber works, and he, and uh, and they're performed by, you know, the great 
performers of the day. Jean-Pierre Rampal, Paul Tortellier, Pablo Casals becomes a close friend of his. And then, you know, in the middle of that 1949, he leaves France again. He leaves his career behind and he goes to, to America to lecture for, um, for Frank Lloyd Wright's school in Taliesin, um, you know, on the interconnection between the arts. And he, and he loses his career again and struggles in America. So, and he has some success. Tchaikovsky conducts in the Houston Symphony and, and his, uh, the principal flautist of the um, New York Philharmonic plays his, his flute concerto, but in general, he's, you know, below the, beneath the radar. So his, you know, the, mus the music, that, the circumstances of his life made it so that he was, he could never really get his career established. That there was other things that happened. I mean, the fact that his music in the 20th century remained always, there was always an underlying romanticism didn't help him mm. because romanticism was out in the 20th century. It didn't help that he didn't care. He, he said, you know, that's not my job. I'm but does not, but that, that, I wonder whether that was partly it. Um, but I, I wonder whether that sort of contributed to his output, the fact that he was uh, able to sort of resist the, um, the way the direction the music was taking at that point in time, and still plow on with what he was writing, and the fact that he didn't necessarily see long term uh, the the benefits of sort of settling and um, and and a long term career that actually maybe that helped him with his writing. That's very interesting because I was just writing about. I had to write an article uh, <clears throat> for a Gramophone magazine yesterday. I just completed it, and that's that's what I, one of the things that I was saying that paradoxically, the fact that he that he had so many changes in his life, you know, which which stopped his career. They actually those things actually contributed to making his music what it was. Hmm. I mean, Hartmann was a genuine multi stylist. And it was a cumulative thing for him. So he began as romantic, and then Kandinsky got him into it. Was really it was Kandinsky with the with the avant garde that got him into impressionism. So the music starts to sound like Scriabin. It starts some of it in the Opus Seventeen, the end of Opus Seventeen song, Vision de Pushkin sounds a little bit like Messiaen already. This is in 1916, 1915. Mm. Uh, then he gets these jazz influences. And then he gets the Middle Eastern, you know, the East, music of the East, from all over the East, by the way. And this whole thing of world music. So he's writing these songs, uh, impressions of five Maori songs, impressions of Gauguin. The... <clears throat> The uh, 13th century uh, song of a 13th century Chinese princes in exile. These are this is this is what his interest is. And at one point, when I was doing this very intense recording project, where we where we recorded about well, now it's on five CDs of music uh, over a period of five years. I was so into this this sort of music world that he created that I, I just got this impression of this person who was just totally immersed mm -hmm. in this 
fascinating journey that he was on and 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 nothing else really i mean he he took all these influences from from different mediums you know from different media but he used it for his own purpose and that never that never stopped and he and and he went about doing it at the same time as not being distracted by anything else going on around him that's that's the that is the impression, oh, that's the impression I, I get from you I mean, you know, there's there's a story about him in the Second World War. You know, they spent the entire Second World War in Paris. And, you know, Madame de Hartmann's driving the car and Thomas is in the back seat composing. Thomas is, they move into a house. They move into this house and the Nazis kick them out. And they have to move into another house. And in this other house, there's a, um, there's a, a, a window in the ceiling, in the roof, you know. And so he puts his desk underneath the roof to compose. And Madame walks in and she says, I don't like it. Move that desk. So he moves the desk. And the next day, a chunk of metal from a, from a bomb or something comes flying right through that very thing. I mean, he's living in the middle of this war. And he's completely oblivious. Well, I mean, there's, there's way too much to talk about. But we could talk about a little bit about what the Thomas de Hartmann project has been doing mm-hmm. because that's sort of relevant to 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 what? what's happening now. What has it been doing? So in two thousand it began in two thousand six and I was approached by um, by Robert Fripp of all people, who's King Crimson of King Crimson fame and, and other and he said to me that if I would take on this project, a 21-year project to get Hartmann's music into the world, he would help. So we're now 14 years into this project. And it's, it's now finally really beginning to come to the attention of the public, you know, this Nimbus recordings. Uh, but at the same time as these the piano, solo piano, the chamber music works, and the vocal works have now been released. We're now working on the orchestral works. And there is a there is um, more than a strong likelihood that we have found an orchestra to record, perform, and record almost all of Hartmann's music. Mm-hmm. I can't give you details because it's not yet been signed. But what this is indicating to me what all of this is really indicating to me is that the time the time is finally coming for Hartmann to become known now. And that must be lovely for you. I mean, I know it's not about you, but it must be, you know, to have devoted 14 years and eventually 21 years to uh, this particular cause, that must be very special for you. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's very exciting because, you know, just to just to look back and see 40 years ago, 50 years ago, almost, what is it, 1972, almost 50 years ago, this music was was completely hidden from view. You know, it was in the uh, it was in the basement. Almost all the music was in the basement of the person who now has the Thomas de Hartmann estate in Montreal. And the rest of the music was it was it was yet to arrive at Yale University, where a large amount of the manuscripts and, and the music lives right now. But it was completely unknown. 
And now we have some world-class musicians who have said, yes, this music is interesting. We would like to play it. 